Welcome to Design Talk. I'm Alan Higgins. In this episode, we talked with Mark Cook from Bright Eye Games about his path and approach to the business of publishing board games. Bright Eye Games' quest is to bring out lighthearted, funny, fun games that can be enjoyed by all. This interview took place via Zoom to an in-class audience on Thursday the 9th of November 2023 as part of a class on design and product management at UCD Michael Smurf Graduate School of Business. Hi, I'm Subhashini. Hi, uh, I'm Callum. We are the hosts for today and we are very, very honoured to have you here, Mark, and thank you for joining us. So today in audience, we have the digital innovation students from the UCD Smurfett Business School and our professor who had made this event really possible. Yeah, so I guess to start it off, I think a lot of us here are probably learning uh, probably slowly uh, about the you know tabletop game world and about you, of course. So could you just kind of give us an insight into how you got into gaming and you know the industry itself and then what motivates you to stay in it? Yeah, sure. So um, I won't go back too far, but I would say when I was about four or five years old. <laughs> uh, no, but I think a lot of families um, are probably like you grow up in a gaming family or not. And like, I think probably as, as your kids, you maybe play Monopoly or Cluedo or Jenga or these kinds of games or card games. Um, and that's the kind of family I grew up in. So uh, my mum uh, would often have us playing games. I'd play card games with my nan after school, um, things like that. Um, and so always maintained an interest in it. Um, uh, and then, uh, if I carried on like that, as I uh, as I kind of got older, someone introduced me to modern, what we call hobby board games, um, something uh, like Settlers of Catan or Carcassonne, games like that. Uh, and it just opened up this whole new world to me, and uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, at the time, so when I uh, went through university, my degree was in uh, visual communication, so kind of like graphic design, but it was a lot of problem-solving stuff. From that, I went into project management. Uh, I was working for a charity uh, for a long time doing events uh, and various things like that. Um, but I used that uh, project management background. I went in, uh, there was an opening at a board game company and I applied for that. They were over in Denmark and I randomly got it. And uh, that's how I got into uh, board game. And that was uh, in, into the hobby of, in, into the industry, sorry. And that was 2019. Um, so I worked for them for a bit. Uh, I went on to a, a different company and then I decided I wanted to set up my own company. Um, uh, yeah, that's how it happened. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. Just when, when about did you set up your own company as well? Uh, so that was uh, just over two years ago. Um, so yeah, it was during um, sort of lockdown pandemic times. Um, uh, yeah. I, uh, we had so the company I was working for at the time uh, they focused a lot more on things like war games and conflict games um, but we were getting a lot of submissions for kind of family games and uh, more uh, I suppose like casual games um, and so as a team we we set up a second company to be able to publish those kinds of games um, but we found actually that there was three of us having our focus split between two companies was was like quite a struggle and a little bit of a challenge so we uh so we decided to part ways i took over the bright eye game side of things which is the family gateway kind of games and uh they carried on with the other games yeah very good yeah 
Uh, that's very interesting to hear from you. And uh, I should say that the aesthetics behind your seat, I mean, the gaming area looks very good. I hope that's your gaming <laughs> area at home. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, it's, it's my office, I work from home, but it's also my, uh, it is my game. I've got a game night tonight, which is why there's one set up on the table there. Try and get ready before people come over. And the, it's quite cool that the top comes off as well, and there's another game underneath. Oh, it's <laughs> <laughs> really good. Okay, so since you are into this gaming industry for quite some time, and but why uh, particularly you chose publishing, and what are the practicalities of a publisher? Yeah, uh, so... I um, so before I actually went full time and started working for gaming companies, I was already running a, a gaming convention, um, and I'm a uh, admin in the UK's largest Facebook group, like dedicated to board gaming. Um, so I'd kind of got a lot of connections on that side of things um, uh, with my background in kind of project management um, and what I'd learned from my first job uh, was a lot more on the production and the logistics and all of that side of things. Um, and it sort of just made sense. I tr I've tried designing a few games myself, but I don't think I'm clever enough. So uh, I thought I'd go into publishing instead. <laughs> so I guess then uh, probably leads us on to the next question quite naturally is, so how did you discover CoreQuest? And then how did you go about publishing or, you know, how did you decide that you wanted to publish it? Yeah, um, so through just the other stuff I was already doing, like the um, the, the convention and um, the, the moderating the Facebook group, uh, I, I, I had made friends with this guy, Dan Hughes. Um, he had been on one of uh, a board game channel called The Dice Tower for quite a number of years as a contributor on there. Um, and he did these videos with his daughter, Cora. Um, and again, during lockdown, um, they kind of got fed up of doing the schoolwork that was being sent back uh, from from Cora's school. Uh, Cora was eight at the time, seven or eight. Um, so they decided to design a game instead. Like they, the, the reviews that they were doing on the Dice Tower were all about family games and games for kids and things like that. And they kind of looked around and went, there's not really a good introductory dungeon crawl game, which is the type of game it is, dungeon crawl, um, or a family dungeon crawl game. So they decided to go about designing one and you know they felt it had a lot of good learning points for cora you know there's there's uh, maths and st statistics involved uh they did she did all of the original art um it, it kind of got changed from when we came to publish it but she did all the original stuff there was storytelling because there's a narrative to the game so they felt like it, it helped her you know learn a lot of different skills and a lot of different things um and then because i had this friendship with dan and he knew my background um at the time now was production and logistics. He had another guy that he um, um, knew well, who, who was an artist and a graphic designer. And so the three of us um, sort of teamed up together. This was just as we were starting Bright Eye Games, but the three of us teamed, together, teamed up together and took the game to Kickstarter, um, where we got uh, about six and a half thousand backers. Um, uh, the game went really well and seemed popular. And um, so they, so Dan asked me at that point, is this something with your new publishing company you would be interested in publishing and taking to the retail side of things? Because obviously crowdfunding is direct to consumer. We don't, um, you can sell it to shops through that, but it's not a, a great model. Um, and so we took it on and um, it had a lot of community support behind it. That helped us with a lot of the marketing. So all of the art in CoraQuest um, is submitted by kids from all over the world. And 
as you open the box up, all of their names are listed around, even if they just submitted it, even if it's not in the game, if they just someone submitted art, we put their name on the outside of the box. So, um, yeah, and it's, it's gone really well. So all these ones that are behind me, that only this middle one is English, all the others are various different languages that it's now been published in, French, Dutch, uh, I'm trying to remember them all now, Polish, Hungarian, Korean and Chinese. So, um, and then we'll, yeah, yeah, we're looking at other languages now, um, French, Italian, Spanish, um, Japanese. So, um, yeah, and, and we've got, we've gone on now. We did a second Kickstarter for a, for an expansion to the game, which is more adventures, more stories, um, adds, adds a bit more to the game. Um, and that's just, we just started fulfillment of that in the U S yesterday. Uh, so. Oh, yeah, very good. And how how long would you say now from from the fulfillment stage, or uh, would you have until release? Uh, so we're gonna uh, our street date is January. So uh, we we probably could have done it sooner, but just because of the holidays and and Christmas coming up, um, it's really we need to have the stock available in stores in October for it to be getting to them before Christmas and for them to be able to sell it. Um, so we decided to just push it the other. We didn't want to start putting it into shops before the backers had received their copies. Um, we felt like that wasn't wasn't very good. So yeah, so it's going to be going into stores in January, and then we've done a bunch of other stuff with it since. We've done a jigsaw puzzle, and Dan's written a novel based on it, and it's yeah, it's gone well. So it's very intriguing to know like how much collaboration had gone behind this Kurakus game and then how a small idea has become such a great hit. Yeah. And uh, since we are evaluating game in our you know curriculum at the moment, so we are in uh, interested to know what is the importance of a pitch? Um, yeah, I mean, a pitch, it's it can be really important. Um, I think uh, on average now, I think people are saying there's about 3,000 new games released every single year board games um the majority of those are, are released at one convention which is essence field which is where i met alan um i think i think this year they said about 1500 games were released in that one weekend um in germany um and so uh having a good pitch um and having a good um you know a unique selling point behind the game or um a reason why it should be published is really good because you can imagine if there's 3000 games actually being released, the number of pitches of that is five, six, seven, eight times that. Um, I get on average, I would say I'd get two to three pitches sent to me every single day. And on average, how many do you end up going forward with? Uh, about two to three a year. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess then, uh, the next question we had was uh, if you could maybe discuss the challenges and opportunities in the, uh, you know, with sustainability and the production side of it, uh, because yeah. I know you have a lot, you know, going on there. Yeah, um, I mean, board gaming in general, I would, and um, tabletop in general, I would say is fairly sustainable. Certainly compared to a lot of other hobbies, it's mostly cardboard. Um, there is plastic. In a lot of games you know if they use miniatures or things like that but usually that's gonna stay in the game it's not going to be thrown into the ecosystem um there is some stuff um and there's a really good uh, i can send the link over to alan afterwards there's uh, something called the uh, the green games guide that someone's produced um 
which is specifically relating to board and card games um, and how we can how we can be greener, what we can do to to uh, make things more sustainable. Um, our latest game, which unfortunately I don't have a copy of behind me, <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's a game called The Plot Dickens. Uh, it's a storytelling game. Uh, we're just about to do go into a new print run of it next week, um, but we've we've looked at it and what can we tweak to just make it a little bit greener and you know like all the steps along the way. So, for instance, a lot of games. Uh, I'm trying to look see if I've got one handy, but I haven't. Um, a lot of games will have the components in little baggies, um, which obviously is not great. Um, so we've switched all of those out for little cardboard tote boxes that can obviously be recycled when when they're done with. Um, Instead of wrapping the cards inside the box in, in shrink wrap, um, we're going to be using paper bands uh, that hold it together, which again can be recycled. Um, on the outside of the box, um, that's a bit more challenging. So uh, you'll see a lot of games are wrapped in shrink wrap. Um, some people now have started ditching the shrink wrap and putting stickers on instead. Um, the bad thing about these stickers is that they actually use, they're a lot thicker if you ever feel them, they're a lot thicker than shrink wrap. So they actually use more plastic and they have the glue on them, so they're less recyclable. Um, what we're doing with the plot thickens um, is we've managed to source a compostable shrink wrap, which we're going to test out and see how that goes. And so people can just put it in their compost at home, um, which basically makes the whole game either recyclable or reusable. And then I guess on that as well, would you say you, you would see a cost benefit by going down the sustainability route on you know when the customer is receives the product yeah i mean we'd hope so what uh what we sort of decided as a team is we don't want to uh go into i don't know, suppose you call it greenwashing or whatever we don't want to just tell people they should buy our games because we they're green games we we just think they should be green games as much as we they can be and hopefully people buy them because they're good games um so uh yeah that's what we're trying there's obviously there's other big challenges around that's more around the logistics and fulfillment side of things because most of our games we make in China. Um, we have looked at making them elsewhere. In uh, like, uh, most of our games are sold in America, so about seventy to eighty percent of our games are sold in America, but made in China. Uh, we looked and trialed making a game in America, and it didn't go very well. We ended up throwing away something like thirty thousand games. So uh, definitely not not as sustainable as shipping things from China. Um, it is possible to make games in Europe. Uh, there's a lot of factories around. Well, there's one in Germany, a couple in Poland, Czech, uh, Bulgaria, I think. Um, but the big issue there is the the technology um, isn't as good uh, outside of China. So uh, it, it, the costs are way higher. And I don't think at the minute we're not at a point where the consumer is ready to pay that cost. So if if you think if it's a dollar on the production price of a game, it'll be about $7 by the time it hits uh, the consumer um, and you kind of add it up. So, uh, but the, yeah, the technology is not there for things like uh, wooden pieces or plastic pieces. Like you just can't do plastic in Europe at all yet. So you still end up making it in China and shipping it to Europe where they then take it into the factory and put it together and then still charge you almost double the price of the game. So it's, it's a big challenge, I, I think, We'll get there, and if we can do it, we will do it. Things like smaller card games, um, things like that, it, it's possible to do. Um, and so we'll, we'll keep looking at it. But I, I think over time, hopefully, just more and more companies just move to to that kind of way of operating, and 
and doing greener games um and it doesn't need to be necessarily a selling point or a marketing point it's just it's a good thing to do yeah and it's quite inspiring to see you you know impacting the environment positively while you are doing this such a great deal of yeah. building such games which is quite entertaining adding fun yeah, yeah. plus impacting the environment very positively that's a great inspiring uh, learning for all of us and talking about this uh, can you give us some insights about the importance of convention and other forums for generating interest and finding your community in particular yeah definitely um i mean conventions are a a big um a big part of what we do um i think i went to 16 different conventions this year um mostly in the UK and Europe some in America um but they're a great uh place to be able to meet people that are fans of your game and um i think if you go to a convention hoping that you're going to make a load of money it's probably not going to work out very well for you but if you look at it as marketing and exposure and slot it under your marketing budget i think you'd struggle to find anything else that is going to give you the return on that kind of investment so uh, even something like essen spiel um i would say in total probably cost us around 6000 pounds to attend that and have a booth and our hotels and transport and all that sort of thing we didn't quite make that back um in terms of sales on the day um but we met loads of people that really like our games and um we were able to speak to them and they were able to find out what we had coming next so we were previewing over that those two games there uh which are coming out next year so they were able to see them and see prototypes of them and um and get excited about that and then they then go online and share posts about what you're doing and um so but you know for the same price we might have got a couple of full page spreads in a tabletop magazine which i don't know how effective that would have been yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, so hearing from you about all these is um, quite intriguing while we would also like to understand what are your future plans uh, with respect to your uh, bright eye games uh, venture yeah <laughs> sure so uh, i mean we are now uh, as i said we we sort of sign the way we sign games is maybe two or three a year we plan to publish uh, we are now booked up until 2027 i want to say oh great um, right. yeah the the actual process of taking a game from conception right through to publishing can take quite a long time i'd say even even in the very quick if you compress it as much as you can you're still looking at 12 to 18 months for one game so um uh because after the pitch when someone has pitched the game uh the game that you're going to receive is in quite a raw form uh the publisher might look at it and like um they might like the mechanics and the way it's put together but they might decide they want to change the theme it will you know it'll have no art so they often need to then go and find an artist and a graphic designer mm. they might even engage someone like a UX designer to say well like how are we going to lay out this board and how are we going to make sure that all the information is understandable um you have to go through a lot of testing with um play testers uh, to make sure that there's no weird edge cases that you need to cover in the rules and that people can understand how to play the game without you being there mm-hmm. um So it's quite a long process um and then then you get to manufacturing that could take anywhere from 3 to 6 months um with with the shipping and everything on top because again you they'll often they'll make you a prototype you need to have a look at that make sure everything is as you thought it would be make any tweaks um yeah so we are booked up quite away like so we've got um core request is starting to uh, the expansion is starting to fulfill now that'll go into retail in January uh we have our 
the game that we released this year, which was the plot thickens. Um, so we printed 9,000 copies of that. Um, and we've got less than 2,000 copies left already. And it's been two months. So we need to get on and print another <laughs> <laughs> print another load as quickly as we can. Uh, so that got picked up by a big bookstore in the US called Books A Million. And so they just took a load of it. Um, the game looks like a book, so it makes sense. And then we have Warstones are looking at here in the UK and Barnes and & Noble and Target over in the US and Canada. So um, so hopefully that'll go well. We, if, if, if it goes well, we'll plan some more of those um, in different genres. And uh, and then next year, like so we've got these two more games here, which is Battle Dental and Ponzi Scheme. Um, so Ponzi Scheme is interesting because that was an existing game by a different publisher uh, who unfortunately went bankrupt. Um, so we managed to pick up the rights for that and we've done a whole new version with new art, new graphic design, and rules tweaks. And that'll be coming out uh, the year after. We have a game about theme parks, which is gonna be fun. Nice, <laughs> nice. Uh, just on the, you know, that you were talking about the time it takes sometimes mm -hmm. to get these ideas through. Do you ever have any issues with licensing or copyright? You mentioned there, yeah, picking up the rights for a game. Has there any yeah. ever been any cases like that? There has been some um, some copyright cases, and there's one at the minute that's quite a high profile one and, and pretty well known. So there's a game uh, that was released this year called Lorcana, which has the Disney license on it. Um, but the company that released, released that game was Ravensburger, who a huge huge board game and jigsaw puzzle company. Um, but a different company has said that the same designer had already pitched them that game and they signed it and they have the rights to that game. Uh, it all gets quite complex because uh, certain courts have ruled that you can't actually copyright game mechanics. You can copyright the artwork and how it looks and the rule set and the writing and all of that, but the mechanics itself, you can't copyright. So um, it's interesting. And I think everyone's keeping an eye on this case because what they're trying to say is this person pitched us this set of mechanics already. We signed it. And the different companies published it. So, yeah. And are, keep an are, eye on that. are there any steps that you take then to avoid, um, you know, avoid those incidences happening for you guys? I mean, for us, we're pretty small. It's going to be pretty unlikely that anyone is going to be stealing our stuff. But just version control and making sure we keep good records um, and uh, you know, timestamping stuff. Be able to say, look, we had this at this time, um, and this is an obvious copy. Um, there is quite a big issue with um, uh, fake copies, um, certainly coming out of places like China and Vietnam. Um, I think it's unfortunately it's inevitable as games um, become popular and certainly games like Ticket to Ride are massively faked, um, which is why they now put a little code in there to be able to check if yours is genuine. Um, websites like Timu and uh, Wish and stuff like that will often have fake, fake games on there. Um, there's not a great deal of course we can do about that um international law is basically yeah you just have to put up with it but if they're copying it it means you're already selling tens and hundreds of thousands of units of the game so you're probably okay yeah yeah uh, and that's very uh, interesting to hear from you but another uh, question we have is since you are into this board game for quite some time do you wish to create a digital version of any of the games why or why not <laughs> Yeah, so we have done some things like that. Um, so there's some platforms that are basically sort of physics engines where 
it's like you're playing the game but online um and they became massively popular through lockdown when people couldn't meet up anymore um there's one called tabletop simulator one is called tabletopia uh, there's a few others um and so we put our games on there um and that but that i don't know if that really counts because it's, it's it's just like playing the game at home but on a computer so you're still moving pieces around and you're still playing cards and that sort of stuff we have spoken to a couple of people about making a more video game version of something like Core Quest. Um, it's definitely something we'd be open to um, if someone had the right pitch and the right idea. Um, sure, why not? <laughs> I guess um, we'd probably open it to the floor yeah. uh, for questions. Um, hi, um, uh, this is Abhishek. Um, uh, so it's a two-part question. Uh, so what, what what would be your preference? Uh, is it like a digital companion uh, or a digital version? And um, you know how do you basically decide uh, whether you want to move a particular game towards uh, that side? So is there any particular thought process uh, while deciding on that? Yeah, so um, in terms of what we're looking for digitally, we'll, we're, we're kind of open to anything if we think it's if it's suitable so something like core quest uh we've already done things like uh doing audio narration um and you know things like that it's all available and character creation even so people can we have an app it's just a web app but people can go on and create their own characters for the game or create their own enemies and uh, and things like that that works really well and and people love that um i think there's probably quite a big difference in terms of video games versus board games and the video games are able to do a lot of the admin for you that you have to do yourself in a board game. So a lot of, there's been quite a big trend in the last couple of years of turning video games into board games. So going the other way. Um, so there's been, there's a call of duty game coming out. There's a Rome total war game coming out. There's uh, ugh, all sorts of ones. Um, but I think, always the biggest thing people struggle with is when they when they do it that way is how do you deal with the admin so you don't even realize you know if in a video game you open a crate and you take a weapon and now you have that weapon and you just go and shoot it and it just happens but in a board game it's like well how do you manage that how do i do the crate and how do i open it and what are the rules for opening it and how close do i have to be to it and what where do i get this weapon from how do i decide which one it is how do i know that it's now on my person what happens when i try and file that so there's all these sort of complicated things that you have to work out in a board game so i think the challenge going the other way is like well how do you make it more interesting because you now don't have those things that you get to do in a board game and get to shuffle a deck of cards to find out what weapon you get um so i think it'd have to be if we were doing it ourselves i think what we'd be looking at is not just trying to recreate the board game if we wanted to turn it into a video game we'd want to make it its own thing that just had the same sort of backstory or the same kind of feeling to it um yeah hopefully that answers the question <laughs> my name is abhi uh my question is uh, regarding the dynamics and mechanics of the game uh, how do you <laughs> plan uh, uh when you design a game like how do you plan the dynamics and mechanics of the game like uh yeah so when uh, when we receive a pitch from a designer, so a designer will often be the one that puts these mechanics together and, um, and you get different designers working different ways. So, so a lot of designers will call say that their theme first it's, so that might be, they say, I want to design a game about bees going to get nectar to turn into honey. Um, 
And so then they have that in their mind the whole time. And that is the whole game. And all the mechanics they choose come from that. So they would probably make that a worker placement game because it's worker bees going out to collect nectar. Um, but other designers would call themselves um, mechanics first designers. And they they sort of just play around with lots of different mechanics, putting them together in different ways. And then afterwards go, oh, what theme could I put on this? So a good example of that would be someone like uh, Rainer Knizia, who's probably one of the most prolific designers out there and just, I think, is now at 900 published games or something like that, um, a, a ridiculous amount of games. But he's very much mechanics first, and you could change the theme on his games to pretty much anything. Like, it wouldn't really matter what it was. It's But people enjoy working it out, working out the puzzle of it. Um, so when a designer comes to us, uh, we like to publish games that have some theme to them um and the, the mechanics and the theme works well together and is integrated well together um and so that's how we're going to be looking at that um after we've signed a game we then give it to a developer we have several different developers that we work with and we'll kind of pick the one that we think it best suits um and they might just tweak things a bit and tweak the mechanics and if there's a really good website called board game geek and if you want to go on there there's a whole glossary of all the different mechanics um are listed out there and they'll tell you what they are and what they mean and the difference between action selection or action bidding and things like that so um yeah um so we just try and make sure that, that any mechanics that are in a game make sense with the theme that was chosen for the game uh yeah hi uh thank you for your sharing and um i'm sorry and i i want to ask uh, when the publishers or companies um decided to issue a game uh, where they consider the financial implication, such as they could ask you to submit a financial forecast to to consider revenue or the cost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's obviously it's, it's always going to be quite difficult. <laughs> different different companies will have uh, different thresholds, but I kind of mentioned before that most people would suggest that um, your retail. Uh, price of the game should be roughly somewhere between five and seven times the landed cost of the game. So that's the manufacturing plus the shipping and um, all of that. Uh, you obviously, in different parts of the world, you have different things like how things are taxed or you know VAT and customs charges and things like that are different all over the world. So you've got to try and account for that as well. Um, we generally wouldn't commit to publishing a game unless we think we can sell at least 3,000 copies of it. So about 3,000 copies, we've usually broken even on that game. Um, so something like Core Request, I think we're now at about 30,000 copies um, sold. This other one that I was just saying, the plot thickens with the second run, will be at about 15 to 18,000 copies of that. So, but yeah, but different people will be different amounts. And um, I think within the tabletop, industry there's still quite a lot of people that are doing it as like a side job so they'll have a main job certainly designers um because the way designers get paid is on a royalty basis much like an author of a book um so a lot of people will have other jobs as well so it might be that they can afford to make their games a bit cheaper because they don't need to make as much to support themselves um right yeah very good i think we have one more yeah two more oh, questions two more, sorry. Uh, yeah, my, na my name is Nora, and my question is, uh, in the process of designing uh, board games, how to improve the, uh, or how to increase the sense of presence? Maybe the sense of presence means the uh, game experience. How, uh, how to better, how to the uh, clients to uh, make better during the playing games? Because 
uh, maybe my friends will spend almost uh, one hour to understand the game rules. After understand game rules, they will be very tired. Tired. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we we mainly do that through testing, um, like play testing. We we go through several rounds of that. So we'll do um, so. There's different kinds of of, of play testing you can do. So obviously. The first thing is just showing it off. We were talking about conventions earlier. That's a great place to have loads and loads of people test your game in quick succession and get loads of really good feedback from it. Um, but then we need to go through something called blind play testing, which is where we just send the thing to someone and they test themselves and give us feedback. And it's like an iterative process. But we will be asking about like how easy was it to learn? How long did the game take? How long did it take you to learn the rules and understand the rules? Even things like what scores people got. So then we can kind of see... If there's a big disparity, it's obviously like there's something where some people are understanding it and some people are not. So we need to work on that. Um, with the theme park game that we've got coming out, we're doing something quite uh, interesting with St. Mary's College in London, where we're going to be um, using AI play testing. Um, so that obviously can't tell us it can't tell us if they enjoyed the game or mm -hmm. <laughs> you know how fun it was or whether they found the theme engaging. But what we can do is run thousands and thousands and thousands of tests of just um, uh, we can set the different player types. Do you want to be an aggressive player or a clever player or a tactical player? We can do all of that within the um, environment that's been built for us. And then we can just run the test thousands of times and we can see all score disparities. We can see, well, actually, there's a first player advantage. So if someone do we need to address that in how we so it can give us all the statistical side of things. but. We're still going to obviously do the, the the other side of things, which is more the subjective kind of, yeah, I kind of like this theme. So there's been a few games, um, one recently where I really personally really liked the theme and I really enjoyed the game. But I showed it to a few different groups of people and they just never really enjoyed it. So we, we ended up passing on it. We didn't we didn't sign the game. But I thought it was really fun. So, uh, yeah, it's really it's really important to. So the testing side of it is is just really important and worth investing in. You can often um, see if you play if some games, you'll you'll play them, um, and you can see that like oh this just could have really done with one more round of development, or it could have done with one more round of of, of testing. So, mm -hmm. right. so uh, thank you so much. We just have one last question for you. Hi, I'm, yeah. I'm Anne-Marie. Um, thanks Hi. for speaking with us today. Um, what are the biggest markets geographically and, and by age group for these board games? And how are they typically marketed? Yeah, uh, I mean, the biggest um, markets for us as uh, Brighter Games is English um, speaking markets. I mean, we sell, I think I mentioned before, somewhere between 70 and 80% of our uh, games are sold in the US and Canada. Um, but uh, Germany has a massive, uh, a massive board game market. But you need to have, make sure your games are published in German, which is, can be quite tricky um, uh, to find a partner there. Um, France has a huge market. Italy uh, and Spain are very big markets. Uh, China is a huge and growing market. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's really just um, keeping an eye on trends and. Um, as I said, we, we've, we've kind of published Core Request in sort of eight, eight languages now. Uh, but the way we work with that is we will find a publisher in that country and we'll basically license the game to them. Um, and there's different licensing agreements we can come up with either. Uh, they just do all the translation and then we still manufacture it for them or we license the game to them and they do the manufacturing themselves as well. And 
and then they just pay us a fee for each copy. Um, but each publisher would be responsible for the marketing within their own region. Um, we do a lot through, um, well, like I said, conventions is, is a huge marketing opportunity um, because you then get the knock-on effect of social media posts and uh, things like that afterwards. There's a lot of channels um, like YouTube channels, um, TikTok, um, things like that that will will focus on board games. Um, a lot of them will do free content for you if you just send them a copy of the game um, and they're happy to do that. The, the bigger channels will, uh, so people like Shut Up and Sit Down or The Dice Tower will maybe be a little bit um, more choosy about what they feature. Um, and some of them will do it if you pay them. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, it's just sort of choosing which ones are the, are the best for your audience really for, for who's gonna buy, who's gonna be watching that and who's gonna be buying the games. I would say uh, in, in terms of demographics, it's probably mostly 30 to 45 year olds is the, probably the biggest, you know, um, is the biggest audience. But other than that, it's massively varied. As I said, we, we run a convention um, here in the UK. It's the, the second largest now in the UK uh, up in Harrogate. And that's a lot of fun. Um, and that's a huge, massive, wide variety of people. And um, thankfully, there's, there's games for everyone across across all of those different people groups. Great. Mm. Perfect. That was, that was great hearing from you. It was just going to thank you uh, yeah. for your time. I think everyone definitely really enjoyed that. So No problem. Thank you for listening to Design Talk. Follow the pod and share if you enjoyed it. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission. 